Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Evan. I'm energized. Are you? That was a fun morning already. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. We're going to be reading from Malachi today. And uh, if you go to your New Testament and go back one book, you're in the Old Testament and you're in Malachi. So we're going to read from Malachi. We're going to read the whole first chapter, all 14 verses. However you're reading this morning, I invite you to follow along. Um, and then we're going to kind of dig into it a little bit. We're going to be doing the next six weeks. We're going to look at Malachi. Um, as I looked into it, I realized I don't know that a lot of people preach on Malachi. So it should be a fun challenge for all of us. Uh, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. And it's a lot of challenging stuff that comes in, in this book. It's quoted in the New Testament on a number of occasions. Kind of sneaks in there. Um, and usually we only hear about it in Advent. I'm going to read from Malachi 3. So we're going to hear from Malachi 1 this morning. Let's hear from the word of the Lord. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master... Where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals or sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Around our house, we have enjoyed the show Phineas and Ferb. I see some yeses out there. I wish it were still on. It's not. What you see is what you get now. But it's the, the first lines of the theme song 
which is familiar to anybody who's watched it, are there's 104 days of summer vacation and school comes along just to end it. And it's all about these two young kids as they try and figure out what to do with those 104 days of summer vacation. It's a load of fun for both kids and adults. It's fun to watch. And they're doing crazy things like building backyard roller coasters and time machines and all kinds of stuff. And then there's all kinds of subplots that are just as fun. They're not captivated by what has, I think, captured so many of us. Probably everyone in this room at some point on summer vacation from school said something like, I'm bored. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I'm pretty sure all of us probably did that at some point. It's classic. It has not been cured by this point in human history that a child could get bored. It can still happen. It's made more remarkable if you think about it, but don't think about it too deeply yet, but think about it just surface level. The amount of things to not have a kid be bored in our day and age makes it more remarkable that we haven't cured it, if you will, right? That a kid could still say I'm bored in this day and age seems crazy. And we know that, uh, around our house anyways, the way that we cure boredom is to say, that's not my problem. <laughs> you have to figure out how to cure that. There are plenty of options for you. Time-tested methods are all around you. Trees, outdoors, bikes, whatever, balls, anything are all around. And yet, still, time is wasted in boredom. We've all been there. It's misused, in a sense. And I say that in a, a trite way as we, we enter into Malachi, because you hear the text, and it's pretty heavy. Right? This seems like a light way to start that. But if you look at what's going on in Malachi, and we're going to hang with chapter 1 and move into chapter 2 next week, so we're not going to cover everything this week. But when you look at it, what you see is a people who are indeed wasting their time with God. They're ungrateful for what they've been given. And they're unmotivated, for sure. And interestingly, as I was looking at this, last, uh, last week we ended a sermon series completely unrelated to this one, and we talked about Thanksgiving and entitlement as our very kind of last thought. And it relates so well as we enter into this. That here you have a people who actually are entitled. They're not thankful. They've been given a tremendous amount by God, and they only seem to be motivated by selfishness and what self-motivates them and enriches themselves. They seem unable to see the goodness and love of God all around them and lavished on them as they're back in the land. And you can see from here, you can see from other examples, Perhaps you've, you've had these moments in your own life when we're entitled and we go to God with an entitled attitude. We come to God and we see God as the source of stuff. Gimme, gimme, God. More stuff. We're not thankful for what we have. We always want more of it. When we're entitled and we go to God, we go to God with an attitude of, okay, so you've blessed me, but what took you so long? When we're entitled and we go to God, we say, I'm bored, fix it. Or we just say, I have a lot of problems, God, fix them now or else. That's an entitled attitude before God. And you kind of have that here, although they're not always motivated enough to even get to that point, to tell you the truth. But I want to make this point today, that when you love God, your life involves lots of thanksgiving and praise. Both of those things. 
I think those are going to be part of the fruit of a life that loves God and a person who loves God. And you can see it sitting behind the text that those are absent here. But they should be there. Let's talk about the situation of Malachi. Uh, and we'll only go back not quite a thousand years from Malachi, but so not that far back. But there was one kingdom of Israel. And they started under King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. And then it broke apart into two. Those are the glory days of looking back to those days of King David. Once they broke into two, it just never got better. It always got worse. Eventually, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken over by the Assyrians. And they exile some people in the 700s BC. And then the Assyrians are taken over by the Babylonians, who do the same kind of stuff. And then they come over and take over the southern kingdom of Judah, which includes Jerusalem. Jerusalem is then sacked. Now we're in the 500s BC by this point. And the temple is destroyed. And that's catastrophic. If you can think of the most catastrophic thing that could have happened to ancient Israel, that's it. Jerusalem captured, the temple destroyed. We can't sacrifice anymore if we can't be there and if it's not functioning. And so you roughly have exiles for Israel. Roughly they're exiled. And not everybody leaves. You know, only some of the people, are, the cream of the crop are taken. The rest of the people are left and in, intermingled with other new people brought in. But Israel, roughly 150 years, give or take, of a true exile. And Judah, the southern kingdom, who falls second and much later, they got, what I'd say, about 50-ish years of true exile, about 70 years of lots of trouble before and after that. And when finally they're allowed to return under the Persians, as they come back to Jerusalem, there's lots of relief, but lots of sadness. Probably it seems like more sadness than relief for so many people. They come back, but not everybody comes back. There's not really an end to the exile in that sense. A bunch of people stay in Persia and say, this is now our home. When they return, there's not really a king like there was before. And frankly, they should be thankful because that was causing them a lot of problems. But they really just kind of have lackeys for the Persians around who rule. The temple, as it gets reconstructed, it doesn't look like it used to. I was trying to find good images of it, but it wasn't, it wasn't going to show up well on the screen. But just go this week and Google, this afternoon, and Google Zerubbabel's temple, and you'll see pictures of Solomon's temple too. That Solomon's was the one before Zerubbabel, rebuilding the, the one currently, or at this time of Malachi. They don't look at all the same. Zerubbabel's looks really plain, really boring, not grand at all. But they can worship at the temple again. They can sacrifice again. And one of the things that we notice is the Lord seems a lot quieter all of a sudden as they enter the land. So some people remained. They're not really under a king like the days of King David. The temple is meh. It's quiet. God seems quiet. How do you think this affects their view of God? I mean, it's probably pretty low. They're not sure what to do. How do you think it, how do you think it affects their view of, of faithfulness to the temple? It probably has an effect on people. Should it? That's another question, but it probably has an effect. I was likening this to a couple different things this week. Um, if you know the broken windows theory of law enforcement, I was likening it to that. The idea that if you have a broken window in a neighborhood that there are greater chances that another window is going to be broken and the, window, the neighborhood will go down, whereas if you fix it and make it nicer, 
it, people will take better care of it. You can see that in your own neighborhoods. You know, the, the first house we lived in Lincoln here, uh, when we first moved in, there were dandelions all over the yard. And I didn't want to put in a lot of effort, but I looked down the street on both ends and I was like, but nobody else has them. I don't want to be that guy. So all of a sudden, I had to pick up my game, right, and take care of that. We do the same thing with our eating sometimes. You know, we're like, I've been eating really well recently, but then lunch came and I ate poorly. Well, I'm in this deep, let's have ice cream for dinner, right? We do this kind of thing. We kind of, if things already seem bad, so let's just dig into the badness. I've already gone down this far. Why not a little further? I mean, do you ever have seasons like this with God as you think it through? Where things seem kind of slow. God seems a little quiet. Things don't seem like they were, but they're definitely like you were hoping they would be. They're kind of stuck. These people had a chance at restoration for God at a moment like that. God's approaching them, they, but they appear instead greedy, unfaithful, and unmotivated. Even though God is quieter, he's not quiet. He's still there. He's still speaking. And that can happen to any one of us. We can have these seasons like this. And maybe it's not for the same reasons, by any means. Probably not that we've been exiled and returned from Persia. I'm sure that's nobody's story here. But we have perhaps had moments where we're tired. I mean, really tired. Lonely. Wounded and hurt. Experiencing loss. And that distance that we can start to feel in those moments if we let ourselves get distant from God in those moments can lead to a time of feeling kind of meh about everything and especially with God. And yet, God is the one that we should say, how does God motivate these people? When they're in that season where he's still speaking, Things don't seem like they were. They're not like where they're supposed to be. But how does God motivate these people? God reaches in and he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. Let's talk about that. In comes the messenger. That's how God reaches these people. And we can hear from Malachi too and hear those words, I have loved you. And I hope we hear those words this morning. The messenger comes, Malachi, literally means messenger, by the way. He's the last prophet of the Old Testament that we run into. Prophets, let's uh, burst the bubble of popular culture here. Prophets are not future tellers. That's how they get dropped in popular culture. They can do that. Sometimes they do. They are people who speak the word of God directly. And specifically, quite often, they don't speak the future, they speak what could happen with choices. A lot of if-then statements are usually what goes on in prophecy, or at least that's the way that they're presented. If you don't clean your room before dinner, then we can't have ice cream. If you do clean your room before dinner, then we can have ice cream. The consequence is actually built into that. If you don't clean it before dinner, you're going to have to do it afterwards. That's our ice cream time. That's how the prophets speak. If-then statements with a call for a decision. Now you have to choose. And the message that Malachi brings from the Lord is this. God is still at work. God is still speaking. And God made a promise to you and to your ancestors. And he's still fulfilling it right now. Are you in? That's the simplicity of the message Malachi brings. And it comes in six oracles, six moments. 
in the text, and you can actually find them pretty easily in English, your English translations, uh, where you have like verse 2 says, how have you, you, but you ask, how have you loved us? Verse 6 says, but you ask, how have you shown contempt, how have we shown contempt for your name? It's usually in those moments, but you ask, or how have we? You can find them pretty easily. And God is speaking through Malachi to motivate his people to full restoration. Let's look at verse 1, or verse 2 again, because we've got a lot going on there. How I have loved you, says the Lord. By the way, aren't those wonderful words? I have loved you. Don't let those words just be for the days of Malachi. They're for us. God says, I have loved you. But you ask, how have you loved us? I can't imagine asking God that. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. I have loved you. God chose his covenant people and made promises to them. The remarkable promises to bless the whole world. And remarkable how God did it, if you go back and look at how the covenant takes place. God was faithful to his covenant people even when they were adulterers. Even when they cheated on him over and over and over again. God blessed them with times of peace when they didn't deserve it. The example I thought of today as we're talking kingdoms falling uh, was when Solomon, in all of his wisdom, uses none of it. And in the end, the kingdom is going to be torn from Solomon because he doesn't use any of that wisdom. And God says, but for the sake of David, I'll wait. I'll let you live out your life before that peace has ended. God gave peace with regularity when it was undeserved to Israel. God rescued them multiple times, most notably the Exodus, also all throughout the judges, for goodness sakes, all throughout the judges, they keep going and going down and down. And then the exile, God rescues them and brings them back. God continually worked towards restoration with the people that he had promised, always leaving a remnant, saying, I have not given up on you even when you've given up on me. I have loved you. Over and over, God has done that. And the response is, how have you loved us? That's their response. And, and so this first oracle, it talks about Edom, a story, I, you know, I always have to look it up to. That's the descendants of Esau, Jacob, who becomes Israel, Esau. His descendants are the Edomites. They lived not far, bordering territories to Judah. They were always antagonizing their kin. They were always antagonizing Israel, even as they're coming through the exodus, coming through the desert, they won't let them pass through their land. They're always pushing against and resisting God's work and God's covenant, though they shouldn't. And they're used here not simply as people who are are constantly trying to restore without God. They're trying to do life without God completely. But they're an example given to, to the people of Judah at this point of how things can be for those who won't listen and respond to God's call for restoration. Do you want to be like the Edomites? This is the lot they've chosen when they ignored me over and over, generation upon generation. Yet Israel, in all of that, the people of Judah, act more entitled, self-concerned, and the antidote to entitlement is thanksgiving, as it turns out. That's the antidote to entitlement. And I I find it so interesting that all throughout Scripture, 
And we'll work backwards in a moment. All throughout Scripture, you have God's people, when they remember his covenant, when they come into times of joy and trouble, they think back to all that God has done. Paul, in the New Testament, when he's before King Agrippa, you know, he's headed towards trial, ultimately, and he's already being imprisoned at this point. What does he do when he's before King Agrippa? Not only does he try and convert King Agrippa, which is just a marvelous moment, but he retells certain moments of the story of Israel and God's faithfulness to that point. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he speaks what God has done, he's recounting God's covenant faithfulness finally come to fruition in Jesus. You can see it as you go back, David, in his prayer, when they finally, he finally is in his palace and there's relative peace in the land. He's praying backwards God's faithfulness and forward to that moment. Moses certainly speaks about it in Deuteronomy when he's saying, here's what's going to happen when you enter the land. Remember where God brought us from and where he's taking us to. You can see it in shorter bursts all throughout the Old Testament where it's the middle of Lamentations. Uh, or you can see it in Isaiah 64. It's kind of snuck in there. It's really nice. Or all throughout the Psalms. There's this thanksgiving and constant and continual thanksgiving for all that God has done, not just personally, but for his people and his covenant faithfulness. It's built in there. And I think this hits one of the truths we should catch. We will not recognize God's work as good unless we are thankful first. We can see God's work. The people of Malachi see God's work. They don't recognize it as good. They're not thankful. begs a question, could you, could I, develop a better discipline of being thankful in life? I was reminded this week, I was talking to a friend and colleague uh, who was talking about this very thing. We weren't talking about the sermon, it's just related so beautifully. Um, and he was talking about how he's been doing this regularly as a discipline. He's been using the examine it's about a 500-year-old practice, spiritual discipline. And at the end of each day, he just writes down all the stuff God has done through the day in a journal. Picks one of those and brings that before the Lord for thanks. He says that way, because he can easily dwell on the bad things, he says. One thing can go wrong in the day, and that seems to negate all the good stuff that God did. I dwell on that thing, but when I write it down at the end, and I sit and I thank God for that, all of a sudden I remember the goodness of God. God says, I have loved you in this text. And if we look at the people, we obviously see a lot of problems. And these are mostly addressed to priests at the beginning. So we can take ourselves off the hook a little bit. How have the people loved him back? That's a question we could ask as we look at this. How have they loved him back? Simple answer, they haven't. <laughs> you can kind of see it. They haven't really done that at all. Instead, as we've said, they're greedy, entitled, forgetful, unfaithful, and unmotivated. All of those things. Probably a few more things we could add to the list. But if you notice, God throws in a couple of things in this prophecy uh, that speak to what we're talking about with thanksgiving and praise and what God is going to do. Verse 5, God says, you're going to see it with your own eyes great is the Lord, and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Verse 11, he says, my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. That is to say, it's going to happen. The train is already rolling. I am God. 
I'm going to be recognized for my greatness, no matter where you stand on the issue. So where do you stand on the issue? Everyone's going to know. Everyone's going to have to acknowledge it. Where are you on this? Verse 14, we'll just look at part B. He says, for I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. I am the Lord Almighty. Some of you have the Lord of hosts or something like that. Yahweh Saba or Sabaoth. We sometimes run into it that way. It's the God who commands his angel armies and has the power to do whatever he wills. I am that God. And I have will that my covenant will be fulfilled. And you have a choice, people. You can be either Esau and his descendants, unfaithful to the very end, taking things into your own hands and failing at it, or you can be my covenant people in faithfulness. Are you in? What's your choice? As we consider all that's going on here and the choice that's being put for Malachi, and we consider the, not Malachi, the people that he's talking to, and we consider all that they're going through the season where they can feel real meh about things. Like we asked before, can we have seasons like that? Sure, maybe you're in one of those. Judah faced these rough moments, obviously. But just because we face a rough moment, just because we face times of loss, that's not a reason to be thankless. In fact, you can still be thankful in times of desperation. People are, quite often. I think of our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world, quite thankful for God's goodness and hardship. Stephanie and I were just watching, we watched the season finale, the latest season of Alone. It's probably my favorite show at this point, uh, where they drop 10 people in the wilderness with 10 items and they have to, I won't tell you who won, don't worry, I know, I know. Um, but they drop these people in the wilderness as they go on and on, days and days, and they've built their own shelter, they're hunting their own food, and they're, they're survivalists, they know what they're doing. But they're hungrier and hungrier and hungrier as they find less and less food as winter sets in. You know what happens when they get food? In their desperation and their hunger, they're thankful every single time. Just because we're going through a tough moment doesn't mean we can't be thankful. In fact, we can build that in. If it's become a discipline, that can be something that we do, even in those tough moments. And so the first thing I want to point out to you, it's a, a two-part sort of, just take this with you as you go today. Be thankful to God and make it as normal as breathing. If we build that into our, our habits, then when difficult times come, we can still go through difficult times. They're still difficult. It doesn't make them easier. But God's with us and we know it. And I recognize this is a really, a, probably an easier point than most challenge points that I make for me because my, my, I discovered recently my blood type is the same as my attitude. Be positive, so that works out. <laughs> I'm an optimist, borderline Pollyanna in life. I mean, just, I see the sunny side. So this, it's not hard, I recognize. But for some people, this is a supreme challenge. But I, I encourage you to take it in. In fact, I'll just point out, if I can just give a transparent moment about this, even though I, I am an optimist in that way, you know, over the, the last couple of years, as things have changed all over, especially being a pastor in this, I've had lots of moments of feeling inadequate. I've had lots of man moments too. Thankfulness is a remarkable antidote in those moments.
Philippians 1.6, we heard from Philippians this morning, just 1.6, Paul writes, well, verse 5, we'll start from there. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, he's talking about the work that Jesus has been doing in them. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've made him the center point and your salvation, there's lots of reason to be thanks thankful because he's working in you towards God's ends. We have the motivation within us if we follow Jesus. But I want to give us a warning here. Thanksgiving is important. We need to be thankful and make it as if we're breathing, like as if it's a habit like that. We almost don't even have to think about it. But Thanksgiving can also be self-serving if we're not careful. We can be thankful for all the stuff God's given us, and that's where it ends. We need to add to that praise. And so if there's a challenge that's challenging for me on this, I presume it's going to be challenging for some of you too, we need to praise God each day. So just as we challenge people within church life, not just to read your Bible on Sunday, you know, read it during the week, pray not just on Sunday, do it during the week, do those disciplines during the week, praise should be one of those things that we do regularly too, not just on Sunday. Praise God throughout each day. God said it in the text. My name will be feared, that is revered. My name is great. I have loved you. And the proper response to God's work in the world is thanks and praise. That is to say, we're giving that thanksgiving as a thank you back to God, is what we're doing. And when you love God, your life involves a lot of both of those things, thanksgiving and praise. And before we go to the table, I want to take a minute, and it's not going to be silent. Um, I want us just to speak out our thanksgiving and praise to God. You don't have to go one at a time. We've done this before. Just close your eyes and let's just speak thanks and praise to God right now. God, thank you that you are good. 